Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 10th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now a correction. Not my own. The New York Times. kind of hate the New York Times corrections. I understand they want to put them in the paper. Transparency. But they're just so terrible to read. They're things that... Just put them online. No one cares except the person who called you up and said, yes, I spell Karen with two Y's and an N, like uh, today. An article on Monday about a plan by Jimmy Dean to introduce products for lunch and dinner. Great, so we've got, this is really how the sausage gets made, right? Misstated the surname of an actor who portrays the sun costume-wearing character in the brand's commercials. He is Haynes Brook, not Brooks. Maybe if they originally said the guy's name was Brooks Haynes, that would warrant a correction I should know about. In general, it does not. They do not. Goodbye corrections actually printed in the paper. But a great one. A great one today. Now, sometimes they're really great. Like, oh, my God, how do you get this wrong? Or please do not eat the recipe for chocolate chip cookies if you don't want to bleed from the eyes. But this one, the headline was Cheney urges House GOP to abandon isolationism. Here's the correction at the end. An earlier version of a summary with this article misstated the former title of Dick Cheney. He was vice president, not president. That's great, because I don't know if you were paying attention at the time, but a lot of people were saying he was kind of like the president, or he's the real president, you know? It's sort of like a previous issue of this article said, America doesn't have talents. Apparently they have talents. Or, we regret postulating that Nicolas Cage was consciously involved in an extended piece of performance art during the last 11 years of his career. There is no evidence for that. So you can't give away the game, and a correction won't undo that. Today in the spiel, I will talk about two prominent sports cases, one in the NBA, one in the NFL, and how the difference of how they were handled reflects the composition of each league. So as you might imagine, the uh, sports story I'll be talking about there is the Ray Rice case, and actually before that, in an interview, I'll be joined by a former Philadelphia prosecutor. One of the things he did as prosecutor was put on trial domestic abusers. And we'll talk about the decisions that were made by the Atlantic City prosecutor in this case, essentially not to ask for jail time for Ray Rice. But first, ISIS, the president is giving a speech tonight, and I'll be joined to talk about the polls and where the public is about that militant group in Iraq and Syria. (laughs) 
Tonight, President Obama will address the nation with details of his strategy on countering the rise of ISIS rebels in Iraq and Syria. The president has been assailed by rivals, but even some members of his own party for dithering, for overcaution, for failure to recognize the seriousness of ISIS and the great barb to commanders in chief whose commands don't include attack. He's been accused of weakness. But where's the public on strikes against ISIS? Well, we are a war-weary people. Of course we are. Paragon Insights reports we want military action taken against ISIS. And this is largely because of the beheadings of the two U.S. journalists. In June, only a quarter of Americans said we should consider military action. August, 37%. But after the beheadings, the U.S. is at 61% favoring military action. NBC and the Wall Street Journal poll today shows that two-thirds of Americans favor attacking the militants. Well, The U.S. has launched approximately 150 airstrikes against ISIS already. I wonder if the public realizes that. Joining me now to dissect all of this is John Dickerson, Slate's chief political correspondent. Hello, John. Hello, Mike. So, of course, the public would like to combat the rise of this group that's more vicious than al-Qaeda, perhaps more dangerous than al-Qaeda, we're told. Do you think the president is influenced by the public's opinion very much on this? If you look at his relationship with the polls and two of his big prime-time speeches that he's given on foreign policy. A year ago, he spoke about the need to take action in Syria. He uh, walked up to taking that action, and he was rebuffed so resoundingly in the polls and by members of Congress that he basically was withdrawing from taking any action. And then he found an exit ramp provided to him, oddly enough, by uh, Vladimir Putin, who sort of removed the problem from his plate. But it was clear that public opinion pushed him back. In this case, it appears public opinion is pushing him forward. Now, that's not a statement about internal White House deliberations. It's just a statement about where the polls are, and you nicely outlined where the public mood is on this. But how much is that influencing the president's decision? It's, you know, it's hard to get inside his head, but that's the way those two decisions match up with the way the polling goes. Well, what would be some indications that the president is being pushed or following, and what would be some indications that the president happens to be where the public is, maybe even for similar reasons, like the beheadings were shocking and clarifying? Where the public is this instant is different than where the public is sort of overall. I mean, they want fast retribution for this. The president wants retribution, does want to destroy ISIS. It's just a question of speed. The president was elected in part as a reaction to uh, the Bush years, which were seen as moving too hastily without sufficient international coalitions. There was a huge cost to destroying these terrorists, that yes, you could get the target, but you ended up breaking so much furniture in the Middle East that you ended up hurting your cause. Not only did you uh, ruin your relationship with countries, but you created uh, enmity in the region that became a kind of self-sustaining fire to create new terrorists. You know, all the things he's thinking through are about sort of the way to go forward and not whether to go forward. But the public is in a much faster mood than that. Yeah, and also it's not it's his decision. It's not the public's decision. The, he knows the public, if he gets this wrong in terms of execution, the next poll will say what a terrible job he's done. He knows that. And I think of that famous formulation of his that was great. I'm not against all wars. I'm just against stupid wars. But there's such a gap between, okay, let's say a war is not stupid. That doesn't answer all the questions about the decisions that have to be made to prosecute that war intelligently. Right. And also, sometimes you can have to take a decision 
that's ugly and unpleasant because the one you'll be forced into is even uglier and even less pleasant. In that original construction, it sounded as if the decision-making process was easy, that this is, a, oh, of course this is a stupid war, and yeah. this is a smart war. Yeah. Well, what if it's a barely smart war? What if it was smarter to arm the Syrian rebels, despite the fact that you might have ended up giving uh, arms to the very group we're now trying to fight? It has become almost conventional wisdom that President Obama should have armed the moderate Syrian resistance. I mean, Hillary Clinton says that. The Wall Street Journal editorial page says that when those two people are in concert and agreement, you know it's become conventional wisdom. And what that sets up is a kind of old-fashioned, that binary thinking that a lot of people resisted in the Bush years, which is you either have to be weak or strong. There's no sort of gray area. And the president was weak and didn't make the decision on the Syrian opposition, and now we have ISIS as a result. And so the remedy for that, to the extent that future presidents are born out of the inadequacies of the previous administration, then the remedy to weakness is, of course, strength. Is the media up to the job of covering a properly cautious president? I'm not saying he is in this case, but if caution is the right action, is the media too fast twitch to accept that? Is it too into conflict and blaring the headlines of critics and eager to accept the idea of caution as inaction? There are two parts of that. There's the structure of the media, which now includes Twitter and Facebook, and just the pace of conversation encourages or sort of demands fast responses, because for every conversation in which there's not a resolution, you just get cycle after cycle of people saying, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's no solution, no solution, no solution. And so that becomes a constant pinging. Yeah. So that pace encourages action, action for the sake of action sometimes. I think there is always a desire to see presidents in action. It's just what we have come to expect from the office since, you know, Teddy Roosevelt. And both the idea of rhetorical action, the bully pulpit, but then also things like, you know, when Teddy Roosevelt ran into problems with the Panama Canal, he just basically made a solution. And that's not possible in today's politics, but there's still a craving for the kind of action hero president in the press. And then I think finally, there's also a mystery here about the presidency that's very hard to put your finger on, which is that the solution isn't apparent until the leader does the thing that causes the conditions to change. Leaders make their own weather. And so that's a hard thing to report on. And it's hard to know when what seems like reasonable contemplation is actually dithering. I mean, there are some clear-cut cases, of course, but it's very hard to know how to be sort of analytical about when you need to move and not just kind of this blunt call for action, which is hard to distinguish from just a call for action because we'd like to see things happening because we think that means there's a solution. John Dickerson is Slate's chief political correspondent. Thank you so much, John. Thanks, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website portfolio and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit Squarespace and enter offer code GIST at checkout. Squarespace is simple and it's easy. It features beautiful design and drag and drop content. What about people to help me if it's not so simple or if the design is so beautiful I get stymied in my quest to either drag or drop? Don't worry. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 
people in New York City, Dublin, and Portland are standing by to chat with you and to email you from those cities, perhaps even better cities than you live in. Perhaps they've made better websites than you. Don't be jealous. Don't be jealous of their lifestyle. Plus, they probably live in smaller apartments if you don't live in those cities. Use their knowledge. They can help you. I mean, I'm not advocating that you pretend to have an issue just to live chat with someone from Dublin, but that happens sometimes. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase and to show support for the GIST. We want to thank Squarespace for their support of the GIST, and we want to say that Squarespace means... A better web starts with your website. By now, we're all too familiar with the horrible images out of an elevator in Atlantic City, Ray Rice assaulting his then fiance Janae Palmer, now Janae Rice. The couple is married. What this led to was a uh, unconscionable two-game suspension originally by the NFL, but Rice has since been kicked off the Ravens and suspended indefinitely when fuller videotape of the incident was revealed. Now, this has been the occasion for a discussion on domestic violence, which is good, but also, I think, some calls and some criticisms of the original Atlantic City prosecutor who didn't seek to try Ray Rice. In fact, Ray Rice entered into a diversion program, and upon the completion of that, he will not have a criminal record. Well, I wanted to talk about the appropriateness of this with an expert. So joining me now is Christopher Malios. He's an attorney advisor for Equitas, which is the prosecutor resource on violence against women and he was a prosecutor in Philadelphia for 16 years there he was chief of the family violence and sexual assault unit he's joined us before hello Chris Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing well. So I think that a lot of people who cover this story cover sports, and maybe they haven't confronted what you as a prosecutor would have confronted so many times, which is a horrible act of violence against a woman. In this case, the prosecutor, as I reported, his name is Jay McKean. He did not want to try the case. He had Mr. Rice, who did not have a criminal conviction, who vowed that he would adhere to the terms of a diversionary program, enter a diversionary program. I want to ask you a couple questions about this. Is this the sort of crime or sort of incident where a prosecutor would seek for a uh, diversion program, pretrial diversion program, instead of a jury trial? That does happen in a fair number of cases, and it even happens in felony cases. This issue of victim safety is often a complicated one, because very often victims of domestic violence do not want to end the relationship. They don't want to leave the abuser, but they want the violence in the relationship to end. And sometimes a diversionary program with batterer intervention treatment, with counseling, in appropriate cases with drug, alcohol, or mental health treatment can make a difference in the, and provide some measure of safety for victims. I understand that a prosecutor might say it would be very hard to convince a jury if the woman who is supposedly the victim is on the side of the accused, in fact, has since married the accused. That would not bode well for your chances of jury conviction. In general, would a prosecutor take that into account, and should a prosecutor take that into account, a witness who is actually on the side of the accused? I've prosecuted those cases. I've also prosecuted cases in which the victim came in and testified as a defense witness and said it was her fault or it was an accident. Juries usually have a pretty good job, of, do a pretty good job of seeing through that. Yeah. Should prosecutors seek jail sentences for every man who knocks a woman unconscious? Well, I look at it this way. 
if I were walking down the street and someone that I didn't know approached me and cold cocked me and knocked me down on the sidewalk, I would want there to be some accountability. Whether it's a long period of probation or jail, that's a serious crime and it's a violent crime. Well, crime that occurs within the family is no less serious and it's no less violent. And in fact, uh, in many ways, it's much more serious because that's a victim who is living in a situation where she doesn't feel safe in her home anymore because the violence usually is pervasive and frequently it escalates over time. Uh, with someone who's capable of that level of violence, beating them to the point of unconsciousness, that's a potential lethality indicator. And I always tell people, and I always tell the prosecutors that work for me, that prosecuting even misdemeanor domestic violence crime is a form of homicide prevention. Because women who are killed are much more likely to be killed by a current or, or former intimate partner than they are by a stranger. So we need to take these cases seriously. What about the argument which we've seen put forth by the Ravens, not within the last two days, but consistently for about a year? Don't judge a person by one action. Don't judge a person by one mistake. In your experience, have you come across this sort of level of violence, a, a punch that knocks someone out, and that being a totally isolated incident? You know, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But uh, that's rare. When someone is beating their intimate partner, their wife, it's possible for that to be an isolated incident. But more often than not, that's occurring within the context of a battering relationship where one person is using all their privileges, all their strengths, all of their advantages to completely dominate another person and control their life. And frequently, the violence escalates over time, and frequently the violence escalates when the abuser is at risk of being found out or when they're at risk of losing control of the victim. So I understand that as a prosecutor, you'd want to go for a felony charge, maybe jail time, maybe probation. That's what you'd want. But if you believe that a diversion program and counseling can work, or if there's no evidence that abuse has happened before, and if the victim in this case is very much against prosecuting her then fiance. And if you see the, I'm sure this comes into play, the fiance talks to you and you either get a gut reaction that this is something wrong or gut reaction that despite this horrific act, maybe this seems like a good guy. You know, you add that all together. Would you still go for the felony charge? (laughs) It depends, Mike. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. I gotcha. Uh, We look at everything and there's actually some research on what we call lethality indicators, risk indicators, as well as risk inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Escalating violence is a lethality indicator. Violence against someone who's pregnant is a lethality indicator. The use of strangulation or deadly weapons or a gun in the home is a lethality indicator. Some of the lethality uh, inhibitors are full-time employment, ties to the community, access to resources. And so there were some lethality uh, inhibitors uh, in this case as well. I'm not suggesting in any way that his status as a public figure, as a sports figure, was a lethality inhibitor or that he was entitled to leniency based on that. But the research does show that there are certain things that weigh in favor of rehabilitation. You know, that could be part of what the prosecutor considered. Janae Palmer, now Janae Rice, she was charged in this incident. There was also talk, which I think if we saw the videotape, turns out not to have been true, that it was a fight, an escalating fight. She was very much played a role, a physical role. Why was she charged? Is that proper? And Or what should we think of that, the fact that she was charged and it was dropped? And what are we to make of this argument that, you know, it takes two to tangle or something? Dual arrests in domestic violence cases are always a problem. 
many victims of domestic violence use violence against their abuser to either fight back, retaliate, protect themselves, sometimes to, in anticipation of violence, when they know what's coming because of a certain look or, or the use of certain words, they immediately start getting into a defensive mode and actually use violence themselves. We always caution police officers not to make dual arrests. It's a big mistake because it's their job to determine who is the predominant aggressor. And that predominant aggressor analysis is so important for the first responders to do. It's difficult to do after the fact. It's difficult for prosecutors to do. But if someone is a victim of a crime, if someone's a victim of battering, ongoing uh, systematic abuse of, and control, and now they're beaten again and they use violence against their abuser and they are turned into a defendant in a criminal case, that's almost like using the criminal justice system to re-victimize that victim. It should never happen. I always tell investigators that I would rather you arrest no one then they arrest both of them because you feel that you need to right away. Bring me the case as soon as you can, and we'll make a determination about who needs to be arrested and who is the predominant aggressor, but we'll only arrest one. Because when you arrest two people, they both now have Fifth Amendment rights. They both have rights to lawyers, and neither of those cases are going anywhere. And sometimes police, they rush and they make those decisions, and it's almost always the wrong thing to do. I understand that they pretty quickly dropped the charges against her and determined that he was the predominant aggressor and then moved forward against him. But now that she's been arrested, why would she ever want to participate in uh, an investigation or prosecution after she's been handcuffed, treated like a criminal, and hauled off into a jail cell in a police station somewhere? Dual arrests are never a good idea. Christopher Malios, attorney advisor of Equitas the prosecutor's resource on violence against women, former prosecutor in Philadelphia. Thanks again. You're welcome. And now the spiel. Two sports stories have burbled up. Actually, they've more like landed with a splat, and neither of them are really sports stories. One is viscerally, deeply troubling. The other is disturbing, but also curious. So the football one is about Ray Rice, who was originally given a tiny little penalty, but then we saw this horrible videotape. And I guess to some people, this was the proof that they needed that the unconscious woman in the elevator who was being dragged out of the elevator by the only other person in the elevator... They needed that proof that she was indeed rendered unconscious by the only other person who could have possibly rendered her unconscious, in this case, Ray Rice. Now, I understand the power of video. I understand how tape of an incident makes it real. But it's sad and disturbing and a failure that we, especially the commissioner's office, the Ravens, and legions of extra appalled sports writers, that we are so reliant on seeing the exact means and manner of how a woman came to be unconscious in an elevator that we couldn't act with full justice in the absence of this viewing. The Ravens owner, Steve Bishotti, said that the videotape, quote, changed everything. So we see the video and then finally we say, hey, wait, it's real. I can imagine this happening to a real person now. Maybe that's why Terrell Suggs, Rice's teammate on the Ravens, escapes much public opprobrium, even though his longtime girlfriend and mother of his children claims he punched and dragged her in a car and poured bleach over her head and the couple's then one-year-old son's head. That was in 2012. The Ravens signed Suggs to a new $28.5 million contract in 2014, but no videotape. 
Do the names Greg Hardy and Ray McDonald mean a lot to you? If so, you follow the NFL. If not, they are two players who face domestic violence charges. Now they are a headache to the league. A headache, not an outrage. An outrage would be if there was videotape. I think some of this is human nature, not being able to imagine what happened without seeing it. But by human nature, in this case, I mean mankind as in men, the world of men. The other case that I referred to in the beginning of the spiel that's about sports concerns the Atlanta Hawks. Their owner, Bruce Levinson, is decided to sell the team because there were emails that were unearthed from two years ago where Levinson worries about black fans intimidating or scaring away white customers. Not the greatest moment of racial sensitivity. But that a two-year-old email, which probably could be walked back to some extent through extensive PR... That an email like that would cause a divestiture of an NBA team tells us a few things. First, it tells us the NBA was deeply scarred by the Donald Sterling incident. It's a sign that Bruce Levinson probably really wants a big payday like the one Donald Sterling got. Let's not forget that. But I also think it's indicative of the demographic makeup of the NBA. The NBA is sensitive to issues of race partly because 76% of their players are black and because 43% of the coaches are black and 37% of the professional positions in the league office are black and 18% of league vice presidents are black and there even is a black owner Michael Jordan probably heard of him all right it's one out of 30 owners but guess what no other sports team in any other league has a black owner so the NBA gets an A plus for racial hiring practices from Richard Lapchick's Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sports now let's turn to the NFL and women Well, of course, there are no women players. We get that. And there are no women coaches, which is also understandable, though not the physiological imperative as it is with the labor pool. But there are also no assistant coaches. There are no GMs. The NFL is a charity, strangely, stupidly. So they disclose the highest paid executive VPs in the league. Steve Bornstein, Roger Goodell, Robert Gulliver. Go down the list. Man, 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 man. Seven men. The league office does have a few women at the vice president level, not the EVP level. 20, in fact. And what of the teams? Well, there's usually 10 to 12 vice presidents per team. There's a head of scouting. There's a head of marketing. So there's maybe 350 people with the uh, title of vice president working for some NFL team somewhere. 37 are women. Some teams have no women vice presidents. Nine teams have more than one woman at the VP level. Some of them are owner's daughters. The Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sports gives the NFL a C a grade of a C for gender hiring practices. They are hiring more women. But the practical effect is this. Let's say you took the 300 most powerful people in the NFL. Owners, GMs, coaches, top league execs, big people with the unions, the most powerful players, you know, Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, guys that aren't just players, guys that can really affect things. You have three female owners, the owners of the Bears, the owners of the... Lions and the woman who's running the Colts now that her father is getting treatment for alcohol addiction. Three out of 300. So it's a 99% male power structure. Sometimes women's issues are understood within the NFL, but they're never really felt. It's why without a videotape, a counter narrative of, well, maybe Janae Palmer was the aggressor or Ray is such a good guy and look, they're married now. Why that narrative took hold. Not every woman would intuitively get the pitfalls of those arguments, but a lot would. Or at least I think they'd be more likely to get that than men, men whose fortunes derive from the game played by men who are never professionally challenged by people other than men who, for all intents and purposes, live in a world of men. Can the NFL change that it is a world of men? 
Not anytime soon. But you know what? They can at least realize it. They can let it inform the decisions they make. They can act with a little more humility, a little less swagger, a little more inclusiveness, a little less imperiousness, do a little more listening and a little less dictating. There are some who might suggest that a bunch of the traits I just listed are masculine traits and they're all juxtaposed there with feminine traits. I would argue that point, but then again, I'm a man. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the producer of Slate Podcasts, used her time at the Slate Retreat to boat, hike, and traverse the halls of a huge hotel on a big wheel, writing red rum on mirrors everywhere. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was denied axe access and then later found frozen in a hedge maze. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We're on Yo. You download the app and you subscribe to podcast. As soon as the podcast, this podcast posts, you'll get a Yo about that. Would you rather have an email about that? We got you covered. Go to slate.com slash gist email. We'll let you know when the show's posted that way. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gist email. I'm on there all the time. Our Twitter feed is slate gist or email us at the gist at slate.com. I use the Slate Retreat as a time to recharge my batteries. Literally, I brought an eight-plug outlet and juiced up everything from my iPhone to the Brother P-Touch to the battery on my 1978 Oldsmobile Omega. So after the hotel loses power, we're all plunged into darkness. I sell all the devices at an obscene profit and escape into the woods yelling, free market forever, with an implied, thanks for listening.